Open your Bibles again this morning. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let's pray. Eternal Word, we come before you this morning knowing that you are alive. Lord Jesus, you are before your Father's throne and you are interceding for us this morning. Your blood still speaks for us and will for all of eternity. We praise you this morning. We ask that in the preaching of this, your word, that is so clearly and demonstrably revealing of who you are this morning, that you would be high and exalted and being high and exalted, that you would draw all men to yourself. You've promised to do this. You've never failed one of your promises, and we know and are confident that you never will. And so, Father, we commit this time to you and your sovereign power through the work of your Son, applied by your Holy Spirit, to do what you've promised to do. We eager, eagerly await and anticipate the fruit to come. Bear it now in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 is our text this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Someone once remarked, and I doubt the Apostle John ever read these words, But someone once remarked that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And I'm sure you've probably heard that before. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And I don't know that John, as I said, ever read those words, but I can promise you one thing. The Apostle John in his gospel does exactly that. The main thing for John is to keep the main thing the main thing. And on every line and in every word, John points to Jesus Christ. He says that Christ is everywhere present, either directly or indirectly. Everything points to and flows away from Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, there is no beginning and there is no ending because we know from John in the book of Revelation that Jesus is the Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and he is the Omega, the final letter in the Greek alphabet. He is quite literally the beginning and the ending of everything. And so, very literally, John is doing what we said. He is keeping Christ the main thing. Without Christ, we don't know God. Without Christ, there is no true knowledge of anything. Without Christ, there is no hope. Quite literally, not in a form of hyperbole, but quite literally, Jesus Christ this morning is the air that you breathe. He is the reason behind it. He is the builder of the planet upon which we walk, and He sustains all of its intricate being and functioning. Jesus Christ is the cause of the next electrical impulse of your beating heart. You won't live one second longer than what Christ has determined to keep you alive. 
He is the source of our life. He is that which is alive and moving us forward. And John wants to immediately begin and to launch into a further understanding of this glorious person of Jesus Christ. And so John does that. Notice how John begins his gospel. There's, there's no uh, slow dipping uh, the toe into the water. It's instant. In the beginning was the Word. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. Here's where Jesus came from. Mark begins his gospel with an account of John the Baptist and his ministry for Christ, before Christ. Luke begins his gospel with a, an historical account of all that is transpiring around the birth of Christ. And John sees fit to do n- no such thing. John says, if we're going to talk about Jesus, let's get straight to talking about Jesus. No beating around the bush. No preamble necessary. Let's jump into the word himself. And so John does so, running straight to the incomparable majesty of the word. Like a laser, he is pointed in like a microscope. He is honed in and the magnification of Christ is set to its highest setting. As John aims at the sun, S-O-N, of our Eternity and of our universe, Christ, 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 Christ alone permeates this fourth gospel. And so this morning I want you to see very clearly and I I hope and I I pray that this will be not only inspiring to you but instructive to your heart and your mind. Because John lays out several crucial theological distinctions this morning about who Jesus is. These distinctions lie at the very heart of the Christian faith because they uniquely identify Christ as Scripture reveals Him to be the explicit and unique and unequivocal Son of God in whom alone life is found. Now let me say about these two verses this morning that many a well-meaning person, many of your Probably friends, neighbors, co-workers have gone into soul-damning heresy because they fail to grasp the Jesus of Scripture as John reveals him here in John chapter 1, verse 1. Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Oneness Pentecostals, Modalists, Docetists, and others all fail in their understanding of these two verses. These two verses, it cannot be overstated, are so crucial and critical to the entirety of Scripture that all great heresies that have flown out of the the, the church's history have resulted in getting these two verses wrong. When you study church history, you find that almost, almost, and I would be only slightly hesitant to say that all of the great heresies come from getting our understanding of Christ wrong. And so that's why these verses here in verses 1 and 2 and really all of the prologue down through verse 18 become so critical for us. Well, let's jump into the distinctions this morning. First of all, there is an eternal distinction. Number one, there is an eternal distinction that 
is spoken of in the first third of verse 1. Now, remembering that part of John's purpose is not to start with Jesus and then try to prove that Jesus is God. Rather, John begins with God and then will show us for the entirety of the book why Jesus fits that description. Jesus, or John says, this is who God is. This is who Messiah is. And now look at Jesus and tell me whether or not Jesus belongs in that category. And of course he does. And so John fills his gospel with blinding and glorious displays that only God can be accurately described as being. And so he starts where only God is. And Chapter 1 and verse 1. This, this, he starts in a place that only God could be. Okay, There can't be anything else other than God in this place. And that place is very clearly stated as being in the beginning. In the beginning, God is. There is nothing before him. There will be nothing after him. God alone is eternal. God is by himself at the beginning. At the beginning, God is already there. God does not come into being at some point, even though that point may be, you know, listen, some people, well, God came to be, but it was just eons and eons and eons and eons of time before anything. No, God always has been. He was before the beginning. He was already in existence. And we know that to be true from the account of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 that begins the same way that John 1 1 begins. Do you see what John is doing? He is drawing upon the truths that we know from the Old Testament and saying, This is true of God. Therefore, you tell me whether or not Jesus belongs in these categories. Genesis 1 1, in the beginning, right? God created. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. God can create in Genesis 1.1 because he's already there. God doesn't have to come onto the scene and then create. God is already there. Therefore, he creates all things. He who is before alone bears creative right and power. You see, if something else If God had come into existence at some point, any point, then that would have meant that there was something before him that created him, which would then make that thing God. Rather, God is by himself in the beginning and all things come from him. Creation, brothers and sisters, and as John will go on and say, not only physical creation but spiritual creation of which physical creation is only a type or a picture of all things are created because the word has eternally existed creation be it spiritual or physical can be because god is before it god is eternally before it, and that's Jesus and his uh, teaching of Nicodemus in chapter 3 in John's gospel points those things out and makes those things strikingly clear. 
But I want you to notice something in the text this morning. By using a specific term for beginning uh, from the Greek language, the term arche, John is emphatic that the word is an eternal being who existed from eternity past. He is arche. He has been. He is a, an eternal being. It's not, a, it's not a term that could be used for uh, something that came along and being at a point in time. This is something that has infinite time to it. It has no boundaries to it. And this word is arche. It is in the beginning. One of the definitive Greek dictionaries defines the word this way. It is the commencement of something. It is an action, process, or state of being. Literally, the very beginning of something. So in that beginning, in that beginning, that is the very commencement of everything that follows, was the word. And so this is a place that, that only God can be. A, uh, there's a, a Greek scholar by the name of Murray Harris who's written extensively, are you ready for this? On the theology of prepositions in the New Testament. And you might hear that and go, oh. But I'm telling you, it's one of the most exciting books you could read. It is incredibly rich. It's incredibly telling. How God wrote the Bible and his use of these terms. And Harris has also written extensively on the gospel of John. And he says of this term in the beginning, this this, uh, eternal distinction that only God can uh, be described as being speaks of pretemporality. It is before anything else, before time. Now I know. That we all have our limitations because we're human. And we tend to think of things that are very old or ancient as somehow almost wrongly so. I think we begin to assume that somehow that's almost eternal. I mean, it's so think about Moses or. Pharaoh or Job, and, and you can almost get, get, get the sense and get lost in, well, you know, they, they were really close to eternity. But it doesn't matter what we think about or who we think about, that thing is still temporal. The only thing that is outside of that temporality is what John says right here, in the beginning was the Word. That is the only thing that is outside of time. The Greek New Testament key renders that word beginning as, quote, a period before creation, more qualitative than temporal. In other words, it is speaking more to describe the attributes of what comes after it than it is trying to speak of time. So apply that then to what follows in the beginning. That he's, he's describing something that fits there. And what is there? The Word. He is there. He always has been there. St. Augustine said it this way. He was because he never was not. Just 
jot that down and memorize that. that that's a great thing. He was because there was never a time when he was not. He always has been and he always will be. It's grammatically, folks, it is grammatically impossible to speak of the word existing from the beginning, which would meant he ha- would have started a different Greek term that John could have used. It would be wrong to say, from the beginning was the word. No, that would say he was now in time and had a beginning. Rather, John chooses a term, arche, that literally means before beginning. So before anything... Jesus was, we know by Jesus' own testimony in John chapter 17, uh, that, that this is true. Jesus says this in his prayer, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you, are you listening, before the world was. Again in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Not from the foundation, not in the foundation, before the foundation. And as far as it concerns us in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, Paul writes this, just as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. The word is there. The word is operative. The word is powerful. Before the beginning. In context, verse 3 is going to expand upon that, which hopefully we'll get to in the next sermon. But this is referring to the beginning of the world, the beginning of time. And before these things was the word. It has, again, that idea of origin. This is where all things begin and flow from. The words pre-existence, pre-temporality, pre-anything make him the originator that becomes fleshed out then in verse 3. When he speaks of the word as creating all things. I want you to notice one thing in particular this morning as John seems to mark out with two similar verbs, both in verse 1 and in verse 3, that, that he often does, and he'll use these two verbs and he'll contrast them. He'll, he'll use them throughout his gospel. By the way, that's, if you really want to get into to, to Bible study and understanding the Word of God, notice how particular authors use particular words. And how they'll use them at specific times in, in, in contrast with one another. They'll do that. They had certain styles of writing just like you and I do. And John would choose two verbs that often he would butt up next to each other, but also used to show the distinction. The first one occurs in verse 1, and it refers to something already in existence in the beginning And then in verse 3, he uses a very similar verb that sounds even very similar in its pronunciation in the Greek that refers to coming into being. So here in verse 1, we have the contrast of something that is in being. And in verse 3, we have something that came into being. 
to very similar verbs. And John wants to be sure you understand that the word did not come into being. He already was. The world is what came into being through the word. The word is altogether different. He is unique. He is separate from that which comes into existence after him. And he is the reason that it comes into existence in the beginning, a place only God can be. Secondly, this morning, I want you to notice a positional or personal distinction that now occurs in the middle of this verse. So we know that this word was in the beginning. We, we, we know and, and try to place yourself in the position of one who John is telling you about God for the first time. And so we have this word, this manifestation of something, and we know one thing about him so far. We know that he was before time. He was before material. He is eternal in the beginning. And now we move to the middle part of the verse where we find uh, John describing him further in a positional way and a, a very personal way. Notice this, the word was with God. The word was with God. Now we might read that and ask the question of whom then are we speaking? Who is this word? What, what is this word? Is it simply a force? Something I don't think that Star Wars has been immensely helpful to our generation in, in thinking through because it has lodged in our minds and in our culture that tends towards new ageism anyway, which... If you read George Lucas's writing, that was his purpose in writing Star Wars, was to introduce Buddhist theology into mainstream culture through ideas about things like the Force. And so it's, it's easy to, to get confused in our day, and it's not entirely helpful. But what is this word, and is it with God, and is it it's with God, so does that mean it's different than God, or, or how is this all working, John? And John employs the, the very specific word so that we don't get lost in the weeds. And the word is with God, the logos, which you've heard that term, I'm sure, before. The Greek word is logos. The, the logos is with God. What is the logos? At its most basic level, it's understood to be a communication whereby the mind finds its expression. In other words, it's It's revelation. It's it's telling you something about something. It's exposing the mind in communication. It's not an unfamiliar concept. The book of Proverbs tells us out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth is logos to whatever is in your heart and your mind. You get somebody's inhibitions lowered or you put them under a certain amount of stress. They will say all kinds of things that reveal the heart. That will reveal their mind. The Logos is revealing something. That this this word that was eternal and in the beginning with God is also an interpretive word. It, it, is, it, is a, it is with God. It is telling us something about God. 
D.A. Carson, uh, who's written a fantastic commentary on the Gospel of John, points out appealing that, that when we simply appeal to Greek philosophical usage of the term logos or simply to historical uses alone, that that is inadequate to ascertain who John is speaking of. Who is this word? What is this word that has been eternally existent? And what is this word that is with God? We need to refer then, brothers and sisters, to what the Reformers called the analogy of faith. In other words, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Letting Scripture guide our interpretation. And so here we would be wise to employ that and not simply to go to dictionary definitions, although those are helpful, but to determine who this is specifically that John is speaking of. We need to go to the Scriptures and let Scripture define who the Logos is and what the Logos is doing. And as we know, uh, at the very beginning of this verse, we know that John is already straight out of the gates, leaning heavily upon the Old Testament. As he mirrors the very wording of Genesis 1.1. And he'll continue to do that heavily throughout his entire Gospel. But let's go now and see if we can ascertain who John then draws this meaning of Logos from using the Old Testament. Again, let's begin by saying that it's evidence that the word is inextricably linked to God in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created, he spoke, didn't he? He used words to create the heavens and the earth. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And so, understanding Genesis 1-1 and Psalm 33-6, that would have factored heavily into the Jewish mind, we understand that John is drawing a link from this word to God in creation. Again, he'll make that more clear in verse 3. And so the word needs to be seen in the Old Testament and is seen as the backdrop against everything against which everything came into being. The word made. The word spoke into existence. And here we have in John 1.1 this person who John is unveiling to us. This one who reveals the mind of God, reveals the power of God, who is there with God in the beginning. He creates all things. It's clear that the word in the earliest appearance of Genesis 1, as I mentioned earlier, is not only the word of God creating, but it is the activity of God. God present, God at work, God accomplishing something. That's what the Word always does. The Word is living and active, isn't it, according to Peter? And sharper than two, any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing of soul and body. The Word is at work. He creates in Genesis 1 and Psalm 33. But then the word calls in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 4. The word calls the prophet. Even before Jeremiah is born. 
The word of God is active in his life. He saves in Psalm 107 verse 20. It is the word that saves. It is the word that that breaks the stony heart in Jeremiah. The word always does his work and the word always accomplishes that which God has intended for it to accomplish. And so against that rich backdrop of the word and God speaking, we must lay this text Against that and say, now, who is this we're talking about? Think about God's names for the young people that took my theology class on theology proper. And we talked about the names of God. God's names are not simply names. They have meaning. Jehovah. And then what follows in the Old Testament is often. A term of activity. Jehovah Rapha, God heals. Jehovah Jireh, God provides. Jehovah Nissi, God goes before us as a banner. And so the word revealing God is always an active word. He is always at work. He's always doing what he needs to do to reveal himself. And and so John is linking this word whom he's trying to describe as being part of that. D.A. Carson again says this, in short, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression and creation, revelation, and salvation. And so when we see John using that same verbiage of of the revelation of God, we find the very same things to be true. This is God. He's in the beginning. He is with God. This word is with God. This activity, this force, this person is with God. And it's made plain to us, brothers and sisters, isn't it, that this is Jesus. As the gospel unfolds, and so many of us know this gospel, we've read this gospel, we've memorized portions of this gospel. This has to be Jesus. Think about Jesus' ministry. Here in John chapter 1 and verse 1, we find that he is creating In verse 3, he's creating the world physically. When we move on to verses 12 12 to 14, we find that he's creating spiritually. When we get to John 3, we know for sure that he is creating spiritual life. This word is always active. And as we see Jesus more clearly revealed through the gospel, we understand this is who John was referring to. But I want you to notice something here. There's a distinction. There's a distinction here. And the word was with God. This is not to say that there are two separate gods. As if somehow there's God and there's word. And the the word is God too. And they're together and they're they're both kind of separate gods, but they're together. That's not what John's intention is. It's not a general view of God. It's a specific view of God that we need to become familiar with. It's about a specific word that is with God. Not simply in conjunction with God, 
not simply a part of God. There was some controversy recently with the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention, their church's doctrinal statement, the way in which it was worded, which perhaps oversight, but again, somewhere where we need to be very careful, divided the Trinity into thirds. This plus this plus this equals God. No, that's not it. It was changed very quickly when attention was drawn to it, but, but that's a, that would be a misunderstanding of what it means to be with God. He is not separate from God in that he's another God, nor is he simply part of the equation that you need to make up who God is. The term with here is, again, another one of those interesting prepositions that tell us that it signifies not just spatial location of someone, but it deals more with the intimacy between the two parties mentioned nearness to them not nearness in space but nearness in communion and activity with this word is united with we might say better god he is he is god he is with him in such tight communion that he can be and must be thought of as god it's not just with him as in oh he's in heaven too He's with him in terms of union and communion, attributes, activity, power, very being. Again, this is the word. Who fits that description? John wants to know who fits that description. We've learned from the very opening few words that the word is eternal. Now we learn that the word is intimately connected to the Father. He is with him. We use that at times in describing human relations of the most intimate nature. She is with him. He's with her to communicate something of intimacy. So John does here. He is with God. He is one. With the Father. And Jesus will essentially go on and say as much as so throughout the gospel. I am I and my Father are one. I'm not separate. I'm not doing my own thing. We are one. This is not some mystic amalgamation of a multi-headed God like Medusa. That would be a wrong way to think about our belief that there is only one true God. Our monotheism is not one God with many different representations. No, we believe in one true unified Godhead. Yet, miraculously so, existing as Father, Son, and Spirit, yet one God. This is different than other types of monotheism. This is different than what the Jews think. This is different than what the Muslims think. They, they deny that Trinitarian aspect, and that's why it's so important to hash out these prepositions and this understanding that, that is he just with him? Is he simply part of him? What is this word? No, he is, is God. He is in such intimate connection that he must be understood to be 
God. Though he himself is a distinct person. He's been there eternally. Now, again, let me just remind you that John is writing so that as he reveals who God is, your mind will be keen to place Jesus in that position. You'll understand that Jesus is God, that we will simply connect the dots John is putting on the paper that weld Jesus to the Trinity and make him part of the the Trinity in our thinking. We understand and are convinced of that. But I want you to notice down at the end of the prologue in verse 18, notice what John writes there. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Well, who is with the Father? The Word in verse 1 that we will go on to see as being and being convinced of as being Jesus throughout the gospel. And so let me just summarize before moving on to the last part of verse 1. Again, the Word is eternal as God is. The Word has been actively engaged in the same activities as God because He is with God in intimate communion and power and activity. And now we reach a more distinctive point this morning, number three. There is an attributive distinction. John says, okay, I've been kind of leading you gently up to this point, And I'm just going to lay it all out. Okay? I'm just going to say it. And the word was God. He was there. He was doing, you should be able to draw the deduction yourself, but just in case you're a little dense, let me just say it for you. The Word was God. Okay? He is where only God can be. He does what only God can do. He is in intimate union with God so as to be uh, almost indistinguishable from God. Now let me just say it. He is God. Okay? He was God. And so... The last part of verse 1 is an elaboration on that. The entire Gospel of John is the pursuit of that endeavor to explain the Father as, as is said in verse 18. And we can only know the Father as Jesus reveals Him. Jesus alone is equipped and able to do so because Jesus himself has been with God from eternity. He is is God. Therefore, he can explain the Father who sent him. Now, let me just say this, and not to add confusion, but I think it's necessary. The cults, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witness, the Oneness Pentecostals, the Modalists, the, the Docetists, Others who, who will come and they'll knock on your door and they're the best neighbor you could ever hope for and they're the nicest people and they are clean. And by the way, don't think that as our society can, falls apart that those people won't find a greater appeal. They will. Because they seem to have it all together. They seem to have functioning families. There will be something very attractive about them. And when they come and they knock on doors. By the way, do you know the number one 
recruiting ground for Mormonism today? In other words, more, where more people convert from into Mormonism? Southern Baptist churches. Why? They're not grounded. They're not being informed. And the Mormons target them because they know this. They know that they've not been grounded in, in their churches. And shame on our churches. Not just not trying to pick on the Southern Baptists. That's just a statistic. It could be anything. But we need to be grounded enough to know this is what the truth is. So the more they have a, an appeal because of their morality and because of their stability, don't let the knock on the door that's going to go straight to John 1, verse 1, part C, confuse you. Because here's what they'll tell you. And you know, so don't, listen, I, I almost hesitate because I know eyes are going to start glazing over here, okay? But let me give you a grammar lesson that may well save your soul. And I mean that. Cults have long attacked the last phrase in John 1.1 on the faulty assumptions of poor grammar and syntax. They will assert that in the Greek, and it is true, they will say in the Greek the word God does not have the definite article. How many of you are excited you came to church to talk about definite and indefinite articles? Well, you should be. Because it matters. They will say to you, you see, the word God in the last phrase does not have the definite article attached to it, which simply means that Jesus was a God. Because it's not the God. Okay? So if we were to read this quite literally, uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and God was the word. That's how the Greek word order reads. And a God was the word. And so they will look at that and say, see, Jesus is not God. He's simply a God. Because there's no definite article before the word God that would tell you that he is the God. And I have dealt with people who grew up Again, with me in Baptist churches who have had Mormon people knock on their door. And when they presented them with this, the next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call. I'm confused. Well, you shouldn't be. Because there is an answer for this. They have incorrectly and wrongly twisted what is just normal grammatical rules. And it's very... Simply solvable here. Again, let me quote somebody that's smarter than I am. I'm not real smart, but I read smart people. At least I try. Murray Harris, the grammarian, states this about this phrase. John wished to point out what the word and God had in common. Namely, their godhood. He's not trying to make necessarily a case, John is not, that, 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 the, that, the, that the, uh, the cults would want you to think he's trying to do. In the, in the previous phrase, John points out the reality that we are indeed dealing with two different people. For the word to be with God, the word has to be what? Separate person, right? He's not God, like as in the only 
God, there's still the Father and there's still the Spirit. But the Word is with them. And so we know that He is a distinct person. Yet He is still in the Godhead. And so what, what John is now emphasizing in the last phrase of this is that, yes, He's separate, but He is still God. Don't be confused when they try to pull these little tricks over your eyes. How does John do that? Well, again, don't glaze over. Listen and learn. Without the definite article in the last phrase of this verse, God is in a predicative position. In other words, one that describes word. Okay? He's not trying to use it in the sense of, here's the subject, here's the person. Rather think of it this way. It is more like an adjective in its position. The word was God. That's how we would say it because we don't speak in the same word order as the ancient Greeks did. And so God, is, it's not being formulated to draw a line between the two. Rather, God is describing the word. The word is God. The word was God. John is simply defining or describing what the word is in Greek. When you leave off the definite article to a noun, that noun then takes on a descriptive function. So here we have a proper noun, God, without a definite article, making it then an adjective, essentially, describing what follows, which is the subject, and that is the word with a definite article. So the word has, at the end of this Verse, the word has the definite article. It's the subject. God is the predicate describing the word. The fact that God in the previous phrase that we just read when the word is with God, the fact that it in that phrase has the definite article as opposed to the third phrase proves that Neither God the Father nor the Word exclusively possess deity. Rather, both possess deity. He, the Father is seen very clearly in, in the middle part of the verse. And that phrase, as possessing deity. And now in the last phrase, the Word is singled out as also possessing deity. Because he is with God. He is the same as God. So these things matter. The cults and heresies have tried to use this very clear, very well-known, basic grammatical interpretation and construction against us. Against the very word of God, against Christ himself and against his deity. But they can't honestly do so. So when they come knock on your door, don't let them. Tell them to go back to kindergarten and learn good grammar. And good syntax. This is how it works. What John has done again is to so specifically, so succinctly, so completely as to just leave all other arguments in the dust. What he's done here is just simply take off an article and put an article so that there is no confusion in anybody's mind as to who he's talking about and 
who and what they are when he talks about them. Now, notice the, the last phrase there, and the word was God. And there's been a variety of ways that people have tried to interpret that particular phrase. The word was God. Okay? The word was God. In the beginning, when he is with God, he is God. Not God was the word. Do you hear the difference? Let me explain the difference. The word was God, not God was the word. If we say God was the word, then we can simply say at some point, God took off his father hat and put on his word hat. And tomorrow he may take off the word hat and put on his spirit hat. That's called modalism. Oneness Pentecostalism. And it's wrong. And so so very accurately it is translated, the word was God. It's also not the word was divine. That's not strong enough. It's not the word was a God. That's definitely out. It's not the word was deity. That's not strong enough. It's not what God was, the word was. That's one of the more recent attempts to translate. What God was, the word was. No. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The language is clear. John explicitly says to us, Jesus as God, as Messiah, fits this bill. Jesus is God. It's no wonder that the Mormons who believe that Jesus is simply a creation of God and Lucifer's brother and oneness Pentecostals that say, well, you know, there's only one God. There's not really a trinity. He just manifests differently at different times. I can see where they're offended at this along with the the Mormons and the JWs, just, you know, Jesus is a prophet, he's a good man, but there's only Jehovah. I can see where they were offended, but it's also the Jews of Jesus' day as well. They looked for Messiah. And to say that this man, born of a virgin, born as a carpenter and not some royal king, that he is Messiah, you can understand where they would have been scandalized too. And yet John leaves no ambiguity. There's no room for indifference, nor is there room for debate. All pathways are sealed. The truth has been laid out and is clear. Jesus, the word, comes to us, the very incarnation of God himself to explain the Father to us because he has been with the Father from eternity past in all of the Father's activity. The word has been there and thus possesses all power and authority and right and demand for our submission and our belief. As Leon Morris, another commentator on John's gospel, writes, the Romans could ignorantly mock him in their polytheistic idolatry as just another God, lowercase g. But the Jews knew that there could be only one God. And if true, they must respond to this statement. Have you ever wondered why the Romans really weren't ticked off at Jesus? Have you ever wondered why the Romans were never really angry or felt that upset about it until the Jews got them upset about it? The Romans couldn't have cared less. 
I mean, in, in their little temples, there was room for thousands of gods. They were idolaters, polytheists. They conquered nations all over the world and assimilated their gods into their own religions. They're, they're, it's just another god. But the Jews, there's only one God and you're saying this is him. One of us is wrong. Who is it? They couldn't just throw it into the polytheistic basket and say, well, it doesn't really matter. No, it mattered ultimately and finally to the Jews. And that is why the Jews reacted so harshly and so viciously towards Jesus to trump up lies about Jesus, to then get the Romans involved so that they finally would have a dog in the fight and finally would care enough to crucify him. Why? Because of this verse. It proves that Jesus is Messiah. He is God. John punctuates it in verse 2, doesn't he? This one, this word, notice what he says. Not a word, not a God, not a manifestation. He, the word, who is God, was in the beginning with God. Again, who is in the beginning? Only God. And I'm telling you, it's this one. He was there. Hey, Jewish brothers, he was there. I'm telling you, this is the one. No other one. This one. He was in the beginning with God. And so to seal any counters, John places the word again in a time and a place, just as he did at the beginning of verse 1. You can see John is bookending his argument here. He begins with eternity, he ends with eternity, and says this is where the word was, and we all know and we all agree only God can be in that place. He is God, and for the rest of John's gospel, John will continually bring us face to face with the incarnation of God who came to explain the Father to us. What can mere mortals expect of this encounter? What can you and I, as we look forward to to, to delving and working our way through this glorious gospel, what what can we expect? I I mean, how do you even begin to try to quantify what it's like to come face to face with the living God? Isaiah said, when I did, I was mute. I couldn't speak. What do you say? How do you explain that? John says in in Revelation, I fell down like a dead man. What could I possibly say about it? But we can expect glory that exposes the majesties and perfections of God. When we look at Jesus through John's microscope, the blinding glory that exposes how majestic and how perfect he is in all of his being, in all of his ways. Secondly, we can expect glory that then looking upon him, once we turn back and look at ourselves, we can expect a glory that will expose your own sin and your own separation from God. We'll cry out with Isaiah, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. 
And then lastly, we can expect a glory to be revealed that shows us the path through this word from our sin back to God. He reveals who God is. He reveals who we are by looking at God by comparison. And then he gives us the word as our only hope to be led back to the Father. And he does so in blinding, glorious fashion. As we close this morning, who do you say the word is? Who do you say he is? Like Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. He looks with a background of all the gods behind him at that pagan temple. And he says, you know, the world says that these are gods and there are multiple opinions about who I am. Hey, disciples, who do you say that I am? And, you know, they do the, the mainstream media thing. Well, some say, and some say, and some say, Jesus says, not good enough. I asked you, who do you say that I am? Answer the question. And Peter steps up and he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The very one John would go on to describe. That's who you are. And what does Jesus say to him? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Reminds me a lot of John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. May God give us the right answers. May God give us the faith. May God give us the conviction that the word is Messiah and Messiah is the word. And they are both Jesus. Both true of Jesus. He is Messiah. He is word. He is God. Do you want to live in a right relationship with God? You must confess what John confesses. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. I believe that. Do you want to live for eternity? You must confess this. Believe the Word and bow to the Word. Let's pray. Father, we come humbled by the greatness of your plan to reveal who you are by sending your Son the Word who was in the beginning. Lord Jesus, we believe and we confess you are that Word in the beginning with God, present in attribute with Him, present in activity with Him. You are God. We believe that. We confess that to be true. And we ask, Father, that if there is anyone in the room this morning who has not come to that conclusion, that you would bring them to that conclusion the will of man, the will of their own flesh, the will of others who would try to force that upon them will never suffice, but you can. And we ask that you would, just as you did for Nicodemus, just as you did for so many others, the woman at the well, the blind man, others 
in this gospel. Bring them to the light. Bring them to the word. And convince them that Jesus is the word, that he is the very son of God, second person of the Trinity, who came to bring us home to you, Father. May we rejoice in that. May we hope in that. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.